good to be with God's people, isn't it? What a wonderful God we serve. I would just like to pray again just before we dive into Isaiah. You know, it doesn't need to be said so much, but sometimes it's good to remind ourselves that God is here with us. He's here today. He's in our midst, as Jesus said. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that you are here with us this morning. That we're not by ourselves. We don't have to figure out all this stuff by ourselves, Lord. Uh, But you are the one who is here to guide us and to lead us to yourself, Lord. To know you. To dwell with you, Lord. And to live the life that you have called us to in this world. Father God, we thank you. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your words, to be instructed by it. To challenge what we already believe that doesn't match what you say. And Lord, to strengthen and renew what is right and good and true that you've established in us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're the one that does the work. And that you will carry it on to completion as your word says. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I strongly recommend, if you have the notes, you're going to want to follow these because it's going to be dense. (laughs) I'm sorry. And taking notes is a good idea too, in the spaces that you've got. Uh, We're going to be looking at Isaiah 57, uh, verses 14 to 21. Um, And I've got my option. I'm actually going to do a no-no. I'm going to read it in the NIV. It's close enough. You'll figure it out. So that's Isaiah 57, 14, verses 14 to 21. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not always accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry. For then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So I think most of us here, pretty much all of us, I imagine, have been parents with young kids at some stage. Some of us still are. (laughs) And we all want them to learn to solve problems for themselves, don't we? Then everyone can just get on with life and be happy and at rest. That's the way we want it to be. But then the squabbling starts. It's my turn. I need that one. I need it more. 
It's not fair. And then the crying starts. Or hitting, if you've got boys. Or sometimes the girls. And you realise that things are going nowhere good really fast. And you know that you just need to step in. And you need to solve it for them. Wanted them to do it themselves, but they can't. Whatever you've taught them about sharing or taking turns and not screaming in small spaces, they're clearly not doing it and they need help. But as adults, we tend to think of ourselves and we think that we're competent to manage ourselves, don't we? We, you know, we believe that when we go to a restaurant, we're going to behave ourselves. But do you ever lose your, your stability when someone questions your character? Or seems to ride on your generosity, taking advantage of you? Do you get your knickers in a knot when people don't do what they promised or pretend that they never promised it at all? So these things, are they make us unstable. They make us ill-settled. We're not at rest. We get short-tempered. We lose our peace. And when we do, we realise how nice it used to be when we were at rest. We get to know what peace is when we lose it, don't we? So the passage that we're reading in Isaiah today, it's a wonderful revelation from God about how he himself will bring peace to a broken and hurting people who can't solve the problems for themselves. And as we go through, you'll see it in the notes, but he's going to give... A beautiful offer, but with a blunt ultimatum as well. That you can have peace with me, or you can have no peace at all. That's why uh, we've called it peace or not. So, here we go. Uh, First point there on your outline. The Lord will make a way back to himself. Verse 14. And it will be said, build up. Build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. So these first lines of the section, they're an announcement of a future transformation in the lot of God's people. That both as spiritual and circumstantial, these obstacles that hinder them from living God's way, they're going to be removed. It's emphatic. Build up, build up, prepare the road. It's even got an exclamation mark. It's enthusiastic. God is keen for this new chapter in his dealings with his people. So we saw last week with the message that Pastor Steve brought us from Isaiah 57, 1 to 13, in that section, and we saw, as Steve was talking about the book of Isaiah so far, that God's people, they'd not only become ridiculously bad, but they were persistently and repetitively so. God is so much in this passage, so much looking forward to the transformation that he's planned. He wants to see it. He's planned it, and he's excited about it. He's looking forward to it. And we see when it says, build up, build up the road, the way. This idea of a road, it speaks of movement, doesn't it? What do you use roads for? For going places. And specifically in this context, it's speaking of a return. And kind of, if you're seen in like a movie or something, like a faded transparent overlap it's seen in a movie where something somebody wishes something to happen and so you see like this faded outline of it happening but the actual space is empty and we kind of got this this hint a suggestion 
of these exiles returning on a currently empty road. God's forecasting what he's seeing. But we don't see it yet. Isaiah doesn't see it yet. And the people that Isaiah is speaking to. Babylonians haven't even come yet. So later on, these people, they would indeed literally return from Babylon in the future as a physical and partial fulfillment of the other prophecies in Isaiah. But here in this passage, more importantly, the preparation that God is calling for is for their return to himself, to the Lord himself, rather than to the land specifically. But this preparation and this clearing of obstacles has to happen for the people first, before they can come back. Does that clock work? Where are we going? 10.48. We'll see how we go. So this clearing, the obstacles, has to happen first. So how many of us here, here in Mephra today, how many of us know that there are obstacles to people repenting and believing in God? It's not always a mere matter of people just hearing the gospel. Although it will always require that. People have desperate needs, addictions, despair, emotional wounds, false beliefs, deceptions, even demonic oppression. Things like that can be obstacles to faith. It makes hope seem unreal. It makes change seem impossible or unnecessary. And the word of God doesn't take root. They hear it, but there's all these things blocking it from being established. And truly, for some, it's through first believing in Christ and understanding God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. They're set free from these things through believing in Jesus. But for others, though, the soil needs to be ploughed by God's power before the seed of truth can take root. This is important to understand. This is what God is talking about. So for us, through prayer persistently coming alongside the difficult cases, maintaining love and ministering the power of God, as we were commanded to do, God removes these obstacles for people. People are released to see the reality of God and the truth of everything that he said, both the warnings and the promises. And for the Israelites themselves, who are receiving this message in Isaiah's time, and the ones that will come after them, they could not return without God's gracious intervention, as we're going to see as we go through. Does that make sense so far? Alright. Here we go. The second point here. God can't be messed with, but he is alongside the humble and repentant, verses 15 to 16. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. It's awesome words. So when God describes himself as the high and exalted one who lives forever and whose name is holy, he's saying something really profound and deep and awesome. He is out of reach of the apparent chaos of this world of coups and and kingdoms and Babylon. 
He's out of the reach of the chaos of this world. It can't distract him or throw him off his purpose. He is to be feared and treated with utmost respect. Because he has the all authority to decide what's right. He has all power to enforce his rule, whether you like it or not. And he's holy. He won't tolerate or accommodate those who disobey his rules. He he won't. It's not in him. God inhabits eternity, it says in the ESV. And no one can find any place for excuse or hiding or of justifying themselves. God is not to be messed with. He lives in a high and holy place. But yet in the very same breath, the very same sentence, God also says that he lives with the contrite and lowly in spirit. And I think, and reflecting on myself, that it's possible after years of being a Christian that we become a bit too casual about some of God's extraordinary qualities. That God would live with any human being is breathtaking. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever seen, I don't know if you watch YouTube, but if you've ever seen a video of people who have lions as pets, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but you know, you see them, they're hugging the lion and they're wrestling with them, and you're just like, how long is that going to last? Like, I really hope it doesn't turn around and bite your head off. God living with people, like, how does that even happen? How does he not just bite their head off? But for a God to live with the ones who are contrite, repentant, lowly, or positionally humble, doesn't mean they're humble because they, you know, they are respectful of others. It means they've been put down. They're lowly. They've been made low. Been humbled. They're the ones who know that they've done wrong. And they call it wrong. And they call God's ways right and good, even if they don't associate with those ways. And even more, they know they don't have an excuse. So they abandon all right to defend themselves. They simply submit themselves to God's judgment and ask for his mercy. But not necessarily with hope and faith. For the position of a person who's contrite and lowly in spirit, they don't necessarily know God's character. They just know their own character and know that they're facing God. That's the contrite and lowly people. So this great God who won't tolerate sin, but he comes alongside those who have been beaten down. They've been crushed and humiliated by sin and by the world. They've been smashed. And he says that he is there to revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. So it is, it's a necessary pain to go through, to acknowledge our real failings and to take responsibility for them. It's a necessary pain because, especially when we don't know how to fix what we're admitting to, which most of us, most of the time, are in that position. But it's in that very place that God comes alongside us to breathe new life into us. A new spirit, a new heart, and a new way of living 
of living in and experiencing this world with hope. That's a word that maybe we as Christians don't use often enough. Hope. So God says, I will not accuse them forever or always be angry. And this, if you look at it carefully, this is a subtle reminder that at Isaiah's time, when he's writing this down, God was still angry. But even in his anger, God is making an offer and a way forward to reconciliation between himself and people. Because God knows that the only way people will ever survive is if he chooses not to do to them what they deserve. He made them. And he has no pleasure in destroying them. God wanted us. He wanted us from the beginning. That's why he made us. That's why we're here. So now our God, who lives in a high and holy place, and also with the one who is lowly and contrite in spirit, He begins to show us in verses 17 to 19 what this revelation of his character will look like in his actual dealings with his people. So this is the next point. God's anger at sin and determination to intervene. Verses 17 to the first half of verse 19. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. And you just think that these verses, they're just extraordinary. Verses 17 to 18, the whole thing. But right at the beginning there, for me, it's just downright scary to hear God say that he's enraged. Because I've seen one or two enraged people before. Not just angry, but, you know, fair dink and enraged. And it's hard to be around people like that. But they're just people. The idea of God being enraged makes me squirm, even when I know it's not directed at me anymore. Because it used to be directed at me. But the subject which so enraged God, what was it? I was enraged by their sinful greed. It was the people's sinful greed or unjust gain in the ESV. They were determined to continue to have more, whatever the cost to life, to others, to the truth itself. They refused to be satisfied. I don't know about you, but it just reminds me a little bit of the idea of economic inflation. Just put the boot in there a little bit. Just the idea that as long as people say, uh, as long as people pay, we'll just raise the prices. Because they're paying. We'll just raise it up. And of course people do pay because they want more. Or they can't avoid it. So we collectively, we share this illusion that stuff is becoming more valuable to us more desirable and valued higher, even though at very best, we're just sitting still, going nowhere except crazy. Things are costing more, but they're still the same things. 
but we want them more. Sinful greed, unjust gain. God was enraged, really angry with the people of Israel. He punished them. He struck them, it says in the ESV. Foreign nations were sent by him to destroy their wealth, their social structures, their kings, their rulers, their nobles and princes, even the way they knew how to worship God at the temple. Their connection with God itself was wiped out in the formal aspect of it. Everything they were proud of that made them think they were special was wiped out. Even their lives were lost en masse. And the survivors were exiled to foreign nations. And in spite of all this, collectively, they still kept on in the same ways. Generation after generation. God hid his face from them in anger. Seriously, guys. He gave them the silent treatment. He allowed them to eat the fruit that they had produced. He didn't listen to their prayers and requests. Because they weren't concerned about honouring him. They were just interested in satisfying themselves. And the Lord had made it clear to them that they were in the wrong. That they were against him. And that he would not tolerate the situation. Yet they were stubbornly determined to continue the same way without any change. If you read Isaiah, it's pretty long. It's got 60 something chapters in it. Most of them are talking about Israel still doing the same things again and again and again. So given their rebellious and unchanging rejection of God's ways, we could understand, couldn't we, if God had just written them off altogether. I'll choose the Aussies instead. Or the British. No. There's no relationship left. So why keep being dragged through the dirt by such unworthy people? Just imagine, alright, in your own family, an 18-year-old living at home, behaving the way that these Israelites were. If they were to completely reject you in your own home, how long before you decided that they had to leave? And never see you again until they apologised. In perhaps the most extraordinary verse in this section, and maybe one of the most amazing in the Bible, God says... I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. It just boggles the mind. God has seen. He knows. He's not under any illusions about them or their willingness or ability to change. Yet he promises to heal them. What an extraordinary commitment. God knows that they cannot change themselves. And now, they know it too. So now God says he will change them and heal the attitude of their hearts. The Lord has taken the initiative and he is going to lead them. When we come to God, we don't really know our way home. When we were saved, we knew that we needed God, we didn't really know what that was going to look like. But he shows us how to come to him, how to live with him day by day, to recognize his presence with us every day, 
pray about what's going on and to delight in Him just for who He is. And when we've lived our lives away from God, we do kind of pick up bad habits, don't we? Different ways of doing things that are sort of self-destructive in many ways and harmful to others. We just do it habitually. But God leads us. He leads us in getting used to his new way of life, which is so much more satisfying. And even after many years of following him, still, he makes our faith and choices more and more like Jesus. His presence with us and the transforming power of his work in our lives, it wells up in love and joy and gratitude so that we declare all of his glories before all of the heavenly angels, the spiritual powers and to people. We just want to praise him. To anyone who will listen and and those that won't. And so those who longed for things to be better. Things just, just to be better. And for themselves to be better. They will give thanks and praise to God. They will. They will as surely as he lives. They will. So now we come to our fourth section there. The Lord's offer and his ultimatum. Verses, second half of verse 19 to verse 21. Peace. Peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. With these words, God is making a wonderful offer. All that he has previously described of his merciful reconciliation with the lowly and repentant, He now explicitly presents as an invitation to those far and near. Come home, 18-year-old. This is your home, where you belong. I will again be the family you so desperately need. The brokenness of sin, vertical, vertical brokenness with God, horizontal brokenness with people, And internal brokenness within themselves, the effects of sin in all these different dimensions, the brokenness of sin will no longer define them. I will heal them, says the Lord our God. It's quite significant that the very words of verse 19, they're taken up in Ephesians, where Paul writes, He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. So if you were wondering whether God's promises in the Old Testament were primarily for the natural nation of Israel, Ephesians makes it clear that 
These promises are equally for all who come to God in the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility. It's in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. It's just amazing. But God's kind offer also has an ultimatum that goes with it. You can have peace with me, or you can have no peace at all. It seems to me that there's a bit of a double meaning when God says, there is no peace for the wicked. Because firstly, within themselves, the wicked, they, they can't rest. They cannot accept a place of reconciliation and cooperation and conformity. Their wickedness drives them to undermine every movement towards goodness, wholeness and satisfying righteousness. Just like the illustration here in the passage, like the heaving sea, they're never able to stop, to stop making and worsening problems. And it just makes a wretched mess for them and everyone around. There's a dairy farmers here. Like a dairy cow's gut when it's eating too much grain. It's too turbulent to be absorbed and the milkers wear the results at the other end. And in the same way, the wicked, they bring harm to others as well as to themselves. But there's another meaning too. Even though God extends his offer of peace to those far and near, God warns those who reject his offer that they are not covered by the protection his offer brings. They will still face that same fierce anger that he was willing to put off for the sake of reconciliation. The statement is simple but stark. And it sends a chill down the spine. There is no more to say. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But who are the wicked? We all want to know, don't we? Who are they? Didn't God say he would heal, restore and comfort those who had been punished by him for their stubborn willfulness? Weren't they wicked? And if God is healing and restoring some wicked people back to relationship with him, then who are these others who are not being healed? Verse 13 of the previous section that says, But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. So it's the contrite and lowly of spirit about whom God says he will not always be angry in verse 15 and 16. So it's repentance and turning to God that distinguishes the willful ones to be restored 
from the wicked who remain under wrath, under God's anger. The contrite, the sorry ones, they're sorry for what they've done. But the wicked don't value peace enough even to acknowledge fault. Now the Arminian and Reformed members can go and throw verses at each other over a cup of tea after the service, but let's just say this at the level of human experience. You must repent and turn to God if you're going to escape his fierce anger against sin. Reject your own path that led you away from God, from his truth in his word and his wonderful promises. You will never find anyone as patient, considerate and kind as God is. After thousands of years and billions of people rejecting him, God still determined that he would make a way for reconciliation. Even with those who had rejected him. We kill the innocent ones as a humanity, as a human race. We trap the poor, take advantage wherever we see it. We destroy the earth, lie, and then pretend that we're all basically good people. We justify ourselves in everything and think of ourselves as good even while refusing obedience to the one who defines what is good. How can you be good while rejecting the very definition of it? Our ways have broken us, turned all of us together into walking scars. And yet, God offers us peace, healing, restoration. He initiates it. He offers it again today. Be reconciled to God. Enter into peace. Love peace. Cherish it. Receive it. No more war with God. No more war against others and unmeetable demands for compensation, from your side at least. No more grudges. Freedom. Peace. Hope in Jesus. No more heavy burden of regrets, debts and unpaid emotional invoices. You owe me for that. I'll never forgive you for that. Lay it down and accept God's offer of peace. God sent his son Jesus into the world as a human. We know these things, don't we? Both to represent humanity and to save it. As a perfect innocent human, Jesus paid the penalty that all humanity had been sentenced with. And representing us, he died instead of us. By God's amazing and shocking plan. God himself initiated and took the steps necessary to release us from our enslavement to sin so that we could be a new, forgiven people belonging to God. And just as God raised Jesus back to new life after three days, God will finally fulfill 
every promise and raise us to himself in heaven when Jesus returns soon. Oh, be there. Be there. If it costs all that you have, be there. If it uses up all your relational capital and all your emotional energy, get others there too. If in 97 years of prayer and pleading, everyone cuts off from you, then get there alone. You were given this life and your resources to spend it on filling heaven, so do your job. Did you know that there's a recession in the western part of the kingdom of God? If I can put it that way. Only about 1%, there's been studies done about this, 1% of evangelical believers have brought someone to faith in the last five years. 90% have never led anyone to Christ. It's a recession in the economy of heaven. Spend yourself. Spend and spend because you can do no more once your eyes have closed and you're in they are out. So then, friends, in light of these things, what now for us? Well, first, repent and accept God's offer of peace. And if you've done that already, wonderful, amazing. That's our joy. But don't become complacent. Just like the Israelites of Isaiah's day. They didn't value the amazing gift that they were given. But make sure that you do. Also, be humble. And associate with those who are lowly or, as you might say, low class. Just like your heavenly father does. And pray. Minister the power of the gospel and pray. If you are the hands and feet of Christ, as we say that we are, as we believe that we are, then as his hands, you will be put in physical contact with a leper. You will speak with prostitutes. You will eat with sinners. And you will walk on the other side of the Sea of Galilee where legion is. And you will raise no barriers of your own, for the dividing wall of hostility has been removed for you. And through prayer and the ministry of entangled, messy, powerful love in the gospel, God will bring down obstacles for individuals and their networks for them to turn to him. When we live like that, So, repent, be humble, pray for restoration, minister the power and love of God in the gospel, tear down obstacles and keep them down, and repent of barriers that you've accepted, ones you've created, ones others have created, and just take them as normal. Repent of that. That's not going to be the case for you. That is not normal. As it says in Amos 5.24, Let justice roll on like a river, 
righteousness like a never-failing stream. And Isaiah 32, 17, the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. So then for us, brothers and sisters here, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. For he himself is our peace. Ephesians 2, 14. Jesus is our peace. Shall we pray about these things? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. You have made us this offer. And I believe most of us here have accepted it. Father, we want your peace. And we want to live in agreement with your peace. And we want to be like you in this world, Lord. Father God, we know that we need your working in us to bring to completion, to finish what you have started. And we thank you that you're willing, you do work in us. Father God, there may be some here or people that we know that we want to share with who have not yet accepted your offer and they remain they remain under your ultimatum, Lord. Father, we pray for them that you would remove every barrier, everything blocking their way to come back to you, whether it's um, untrue beliefs about the world that they live in, untrue beliefs about what people have done to them and where they stand as a result of that. Whatever the case may be, Father, we pray that you would tear these things down, that the love that you have shown to us in your son Jesus uh, would break every hard heart and soften us, Lord. Soften us first, that we can stay next to people who are crusty and, and cranky and unpleasant. Soften us first, Lord, so that we can show them the transformation that you bring. Help us to have peace amongst ourselves and also within ourselves, Lord. Especially here in Mafra, Lord. There is nothing worth the glory of your kingdom. There is no argument worth dishonouring your name. Father, help us. And we thank you that you still continue to this very day. You continue to lead us and you are healing us. And we thank you for all these things in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus, who is our peace. Amen.